I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Truth and Movies. Today, Steven Spielberg unites Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks for the journalistic thriller The Post, but is it all yesterday's news? And from Pixar, the record-breaking Day of the Dead adventure Coco. We also rifle through the stacks and dust off Sidney Pollock's 80s journo drama Absence of Malice for this week's film club. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, it's Michael Leader here again, sitting across this time from social producer of Little White Lies, Hannah Woodhead. Hello. Hi, Hannah. And contributing editor for Little White Lies, Sophie Monks-Kaufman. What up? Hannah, I feel I should apologise because last time you were sitting across from Edgar Wright and it seemed like a bit of a downgrade, really. Well, you know, it, it can't always be Edgar Wright. Sometimes it's Michael Leader. It's fine, <laughs> you know, I'll work through it. But how's the new year treating you so far? Yeah, good. Uh, glad to be back. Um, glad to be talking about some good movies this week. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And Sophie, how's it feel to be back on the airways yourself? Absolutely thrilled. Let's see how things do. So how are the listeners doing this week? We've got some very good responses uh, Stephen Berkeley says, In defence of Seven Psychopaths, I firmly believe this film is to be viewed as a flat-out comedy, a collection of oddball characters, Rockwell, Walken, Harrelson, Waits, anchored by Farrell's befuddled straight man. As a comedy, your enjoyment of the film will largely be dictated by your own sense of humour. Personally, I think it's hilarious and hands down Rockwell's funniest role. And S. Alexi says, on the topic of the best Coen Brothers movie, For what it's worth, Miller's Crossing is the best Coen Brothers film and Burn After Reading is the worst. I also have a lot of time for Inside Lewin Davis, as I like folk music and cats, both of which make appearances in the film. So, uh, Sophie, what's your favourite Coen Brothers movie? Yeah, I also love Inside Lewin Davis and So Much Time for the Hudsucker Proxy. That is uh, one hilarious movie with a great role for uh, Holly Hunter. Yeah. How about you, Hannah? Um, as I've said on this podcast before, Fargo's my absolute favourite Coen Brothers movie. But I also like uh, Inside Lewin Davis and big Oscar Isaac fan. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't think he gets enough love. And also, A Serious Man, highly uh, underrated. I'm a big uh, Stallbug fan. So. Oh, yeah, A Serious yeah, Man yeah. is like a seriously great movie about a serious man. <laughs> he is a serious man. Very serious. Maybe serious we have good. a bit of Stallbug this week as well. Yeah, I, post, I can't get we? enough. It's been a good year for Stallbug. <laughs> Come on, there, a really tiny bit of Stallbug <laughs> in the pace. Well, every film this year has a tiny bit of Stallbug, doesn't it? Well, no, every film this year has a nice tranche of Stallbug in the post. I felt cheated by yeah, the post. Exactly. Uh, I would say it was frivolous use of Stallbug. Yeah. <laughs> and rounding up the comments from the listeners, we've got a great message from Alistair Angus from The Wirral. Uh, loving the pod and particularly like the novelty of Film Club, the idea of revisiting relevant films of the past is so great. I'm blessed to have Snip's DVD Emporium on my doorstep, and whatever film you recommend seeing, 
Dave, the owner of Movie Devotee, has on DVD, sometimes on Blu-ray. It's dawned on me, as someone who watches his fair share of movies, that we're in danger of missing out on so many classics and cult movies because, if it's not on Netflix or Amazon, then most people cannot get access. I'd love to see Film Club pick more esoteric choices, but realise it's no longer an option because most people don't have a Dave at hand to provide you with your copy of, say, John Dies at the End or Detention. Uh, both of which he was able to see for the first time this week. I just wish more Daves existed. Now, that's such a beautiful little message about Dave up in Snips. Dave sounds great. DVD Emporium in the world. I think we should go for a... Shout out to Dave, right? We should do a podcast in Dave's shop. He sounds like absolute guy. Make it happen, social Not producer. So, John Dies at the End is a good movie. Detention's I, I, a good movie. You know, these are both good choices. But it's a good point, and it's one that I kind of wrestle with. Where do we get our recommendations from nowadays? Little White Lies. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote an article about this for mm. our website about um, how in the age of streaming do we keep finding good movies and how do we ensure that good movies don't get lost? There's a lot of good movies coming up on Netflix. Uh, Duncan Jones, uh, his new film is coming out on Netflix, so you know it might get missed by a lot of people who would probably enjoy it if they got the chance to see it. So, Well, ne- Netflix is uploading so many films now because of the algorithm. Things exactly. can get lost. Like yeah. Good Time, which was a previous favourite of ours, went up very recently, or Mudbound went up there, and there's a chance that you can miss it. But I've never had that DVD shop, but there are other sort of surrogate equivalents of that. I guess the DVD shop is similar to the record shop or the comic book shop. But for films... I have certain curators or programmers, whatever's on at the Prince Charles Cinema or the BFI, whatever is released on Arrow Films or Masters of Cinema DVD releases and so on. But mainly I get many of my recommendations or new avenues to go down from Letterboxd. I don't oh, know yeah, if you've, I love Letterboxd. Yeah, yeah, yeah big, which is a big, big fan of Letterboxd. Primarily a logging service, but becomes this huge community of people sort of showing off how obscure their tastes are. <laughs> but also you find just how broader range of films that are out there. I think it's nice to have these sort of virtual, the equivalent of a record shop where you can kind of go and hang out and talk to people about something you love. Um, I know the comic book shop is kind of like the the old style and the record shop in, in movies. It's where all the kids would go and hang out and talk about, you know, the latest releases. So it'd be nice to do that in real life. But for the time being, I guess Twitter and Letterboxd will have to suffice. And... We should also shout out to Movie because it's it's like a more rarefied version of Netflix where it's much more curated and they'll try and say uh, a director has a new film at Cannes or Berlin or one of the big festivals, they might show one of their older films. So they try to connect to what's going on in the film world and it's less overwhelming than Netflix because it's always 30 films and they'll be on there for 30 days and then they'll get replaced by a new one. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's the space that exists for more obscure titles yeah definitely uh, movies fantastic if you've not checked it out already get on there there's a lot of um, uh, Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence was out there recently a great film yeah. if you kind of get a bit overwhelmed by streaming services it's definitely one to look into it's very well designed nice browsing experience ah yes there's some an- antidotes there for <laughs> digital bloat virtual daves virtual daves plenty. thank you so much for that message Alistair and if you want to uh, send us any comments you can do so at uh, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email or at lwlies on twitter um, or there's also a comment section on uh, lwlies.com slash podcast so let's uh, get on with uh, this week's new releases first up Steven Spielberg's The Post
To print or not to print? That's the question faced by the staff of the Washington Post when a massive government leak lands in their laps. But do they want to get on the Nixon administration's bad side? Publisher Catherine K. Graham and editor Ben Bradley, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, must make the call. It's a true story, and in this clip... This is the Washington Post crew seeing what they've got. It's not the full report, but it's over 4,000 pages of it. Huh. Are these in order? I don't think so. There are no page numbers. Yeah, that's where the top secret stamps were. My source had to cut them off. We're supposed to retire on Friday. Ben, how are we supposed to comb through 4,000 pages? They're not even loosely organized. had three months. There's no way we can possibly get this right. We got less than eight hours. We could shoot for City, then we'd have ten. Hey, 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 hey. For the last six years, we've been playing catch-up. And now, thanks to the President of the United States, who, by the way, has taken a all over the First Amendment, we have the goods. We don't have any competition. There's dozens of stories in here. The Times has barely scratched the surface. We have 10 hours till the deadline, so we dig in. Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg. That's quite a lineup, Hannah. What, what do you think? This sort of came out of nowhere. Um, I think a lot of people weren't even aware it was coming until the first poster came out um, a couple of months before release. And I was super excited. Love journalism. Love Meryl Streep. Love Tom <laughs> Hanks. All the pieces were there. Love history as well. It's great if you're a fan of. Uh, the Cold War era. It's a great uh, film about... And who isn't? Who isn't? Who isn't? <laughs> it's a great film about the uh, power plays throughout the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s. But it, it certainly does come across as one of those, almost a throwback for Spielberg, not, not necessarily in his own filmography, but it's him maybe toying with the genre that was perfected by all the president's men 40 years ago, a sort of political journalistic thriller of whistleblowing and rushing to the press. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very much uh, Spielberg doing a Munich. It's him uh-huh. sort of uh, going back to his big story told in a sort of more intimate way. This was done after he'd finished Ready Player One, which is out in March, which is obviously a much, much bigger, flashier blockbuster you know, extravaganza. This is much more sort of character-driven, like pure, all the drama is in exactly what's being said. The majority of it is just Streep and Hanks and um, the always great Bob Odenkirk just talking and arguing with each other. That's something I find quite fascinating about this. On the face of it, you may think that it's just a straightforward sort of spotlight rehash of journalists doing the right thing and fighting the system to let truth win out. But this particular story is quite fascinating in the sort of the verticality of the issues, the way that you have the publisher, the editor and the journalist, as you say, Meryl Streep up top, Tom Hanks is the editor and then Bob Odenkirk is the investigative journalist and they all have their own goals and, and, and uh, like conflicts at play you know Meryl Streep and as, as Kay Graham as a member of the Washington High Society is very much familiar with the, the, the halls of power as is Ben Bradley who is a, a close friend of the Kennedy administration so when this expose comes around that talks about historic lying on the part of the government with regards to the Vietnam War they're all complicit. I think yeah I think one of the things that I found most interesting was um, the sort of press were all having dinner with um the politicians and mm-hmm. um, Kay Graham was really good friends with Robert McNamara, who um, was involved quite heavily in the um, writing of the Pentagon Papers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of um, said to her, "You know, this story's going to come out. Don't get involved." Mm-hmm. And uh, you have that push and pull between I have to do this because this is my job and this is my duty, but also these are my friends and I don't want to ruin their lives. And I think it, it's good at kind of. Um, showing apart from Nixon who is obviously portrayed as this like sort of um 
big baddie in the background, like weird shadowy voiceovers and things. Um, it's good at portraying the grey lines. Mm. Sophie, was this compelling for you? No, sorry. <laughs> I just feel like, okay, it's an interesting story. And if you're interested in all of the great meaty themes listed by Hannah, you might want to go and see it. But it's just very literal storytelling. This is cinema. And Steven Spielberg is a master, a maestro of creating cinema, creating cinematic moments and telling stories with all the elements of cinema, with images, with music. This is a movie about people having lots of different conversations <laughs> and I feel like he almost does a thing that Davy the Boy Jenkins accused Darkest Hour of last week which is like not believing that the material is sufficiently interesting and trying to jazz it up with like intense dolly zoom in intense dolly zoom out and then you know there'll be conversations like where's Fritz where is Fritz Fritz is on the phone, guys. <laughs> so it's interesting as a story to watch unfold as a story, but as a piece of cinema, I was very underwhelmed considering the calibre of the talent corralled. And I'm not just talking about the headliners, Streep and Hanks. I'm talking about the bit players. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got Alison Brie, you've got Michael Stuhlberg. They're there in nothing roles. Like, oh, particularly Alison Brie and Sarah Paulson uh, are, yeah. are wasted. Two yeah. the you know, greatest actresses of, of, of their sort of type their generation pretty they, much they must have been thrilled to get that phone call from Spielberg <laughs> and then like read the scripts and were like oh okay which is it's written by a first time screenwriter called Liz Hanna as well mm. who kind of said like this was her last ditch attempt to get a, a screenplay um, produced and um, it's strange the female characters apart from with the exception of Meryl Streep's character who does um, kind of get this really interesting arc of all all the men basically trying Mm -hmm. to stop her doing her job and saying she's incapable of doing her job. The rest of the female characters are just kind of there to have a conversation with a male character and then they leave the room. To bring the male characters some sandwiches. (laughs) Yes. Women are great feeders is is one possible takeaway from the post. But but this is really Meryl Streep's show, isn't it? I mean, even though we do have this ensemble and even though Hanks is sharing top billing, I do think in some ways, even though he does slam his foot down on every surface he can. Can we talk about his, like, tick-ridden performance? Oh, if you want to, go ahead, Sophie. Uh, Well, it's just, again, I I feel like Tom Hanks is a safe pair of hands. Like, I love to watch him in whatever he does. He brings this, like, real heart. And it's kind of a cliche to say that about him. You know, everybody loves Tom Hanks, but I am one of everybody and I love Tom <laughs> Hanks. And I just didn't get anything out, mm-hmm. out of him in this role. He's like doing this really like Pinocchio style jerky performance for no clear reason, dramatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's an impersonation of Ben Bradley. And it really upset me to not be moved by a Tom mm-hmm. Hanks performance. Mm-hmm. I don't know, what did you guys think of his performance? I I think that he just worked more as dramatic glue between these various layers, and really who worked for me were Meryl Streep and Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk's Mm. brilliant as as this sort of slightly world-weary, morose uh, Invesco journalist who has this little air of slapstick to him. Mm, True. Yeah, Yeah, it's very much, uh, if you're a fan of Better Call Saul, you'll Mm. enjoy his performance in this. He's very, uh, he's always good, and I don't think Bob Odenkirk kind of gets enough recognition as a... A dramatic talent. I think he, he's very good in it. But Meryl Streep, uh, just to go back to her performance, which is it is a classic Meryl Streep performance. She's as good as she always is. But particularly there's one scene where she's uh, she's hosted this party and she's been called away to discuss the Pentagon Papers and she's wearing this glorious caftan. It's like really beautiful. And she's giving this like really dramatic speech. And I was just like, this is the film. I just want two hours of Meryl just in a caftan, just, you know, ripping into everyone and mm-hmm. saying like what's wrong with the world, you know? So it's such an interesting story if you don't know the history of the Pentagon Papers, which over here, I don't know how many people will be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I hope it gets more people to go and read about it and uh, it can be taken as a bit of a power to the press, you know, know, Mm -hmm. fake news uh, slam on things, but I didn't think it felt overly preachy. I think mm. it strikes quite a nice balance. Spielberg has a, a funny history, doesn't he, with sort of overtly political statements or cinema. He he thinks or maybe positions a film as being his political movie, but actually things maybe seem more grey area. Talking about Minority Report being a sort of Bush-era film and, and, and so on. And this one, it's very easy with the trappings around it, the sort of self-consciousness of the sort of 70s camera moves and uh, the grain that's dialed in in the print and so on, to maybe think of it as a... As more of a timepiece rather than a timely piece, maybe. Mm, I think it is more of a mm. timepiece. I wouldn't say it's a film that you need to watch right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's as uh, sort of prescient as a lot of uh, critics have said it is. But the, one thing I will say that isn't related to that, but just about the way it's shot, there's this absolutely magnificent moment where um, Bob Odenkirk's character is watching the printing presses. Well, mm. not watching them, but like waiting for the uh, for the paper to go to print. And oh my god, if you're a fan of like nerdy typography and stuff like you would love it it's just it's just fantastic that actually will come up again in a couple of uh, minutes where we talk about absence of malice in a very 80s mode yeah yeah <laughs> there's a lot of nice in jokes actually and all like little moments that maybe journalists or fans of journalism will get there's a, a great sub editor moment towards the end where a sub just kind of destroys somebody's work <laughs> with a with red pen but what i'd like to know from you two is um we've talked about how maybe the, the female supporting characters are given quite short shrift really but Kay Graham, as this major historical figure, is uh, one of the first female CEOs of a major company in America. She's there and uh, surrounded by a board of male gaslighters, many of them, in fact. Mm. And it's really the arc of her story there is that she's standing up and owning her legacy as the daughter of the, the owner of the company who's now inherited it. So how do we feel about that arc? Is, it, is this a triumphant film in that regard? Sophie, you're, you're... I hate to be like Debbie Dower, but like <laughs> Debbie Downer, I'm not Dower. The movie's dour. It's a very muted performance by Meryl until she gets her big moment. And it understa- it's like muted for a reason. She's a, she's a character downtrodden by most of the men around her. For some reason, it just, it just, I don't know why. It just didn't really land for me. I don't know. It, it almost felt a bit by numbers. Mm. And it also like so there's two stories going on you know there's like are they going to publish are they not going to publish and then there's like how's Meryl doing and I don't know how well those two storylines were combined so I don't know there was just something missing and I I can't exactly pinpoint what it was although I can't criticise Meryl's performance Mm. One person we've not mentioned so far is Tracy Letts, who plays Fritz, the Fritz that was... Was he on the phone? (laughs) I thought he played a really well handled performance here. Fritz is, um, let's say, a a family aide who is is her principal advisor. And I'd say the way that I read that character, I found it very hard to read, in fact. Throughout the whole film, I wasn't sure whether he was being almost K. Graham's kind of handler Mm. or whether he was actually actually helping her. Yeah, malevolent or benevolent for Exactly. We didn't know. And Tracy Letts is such a gifted minimalist performer when he needs to be. He's also great in Lady Bird, which is coming up next month. Oh, God, so good. So good in Lady Bird. Very different performance, very different role. But in this one, Mm. again a very quiet performance just there in the background and actually says more at times with his silence or a little reaction shot than a lot of the 
quite overwritten dialogue can can say. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning Tracy Letts because actually his scenes with Meryl they were amongst my favourite, along with the like printing press porn, which was also <laughs> just the most thrilling aspects. And it almost kind of reminded me a bit about like another recent Meryl performance, um, Florence Foster Jenkins, oh. where she is married to Hugh Grant. But he's like much younger, and he kind of is her carer. Mm. And there was this real, this like kind of this strange, hard to pin down intimacy between them. Kay uh, is a character who is like very much shunted to the side and disrespected in a very like conniving way by a lot of men. And she comes a little bit more alive in her scenes with Tracy Letts. And mm. there's a really nice, hard to pin down relationship situation going on there it's a testament to the caliber of Marilyn Tracy so yeah thank you so much for mentioning Tracy only love for Tracy <laughs> only love for Tracy but love for the film in general let's put some numbers on it how did you bring it first I think it was a pretty solid five in anticipation and very much you know you hear th- those three names together Street mm-hmm. Hank Spielberg uh, but it, I think it's five four four for me it, mm-hmm. I think it's a solid film it's mm-hmm. it's a Spielberg it's not his greatest but same with Meryl even Spielberg's not greatest is still pretty great. So. Mm-hmm. Did you say five for all four? Have you invented a five another? four four? All oh, right, five, five four. 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 <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> invented a new a new system. Going rogue. No Adam or David this week. That's <laughs> well, great. I support female innovation. <laughs> <laughs> so for your numbers, uh, four three two. Four, oh, three, wow. two. two. Sorry. Oh. It's just because I, I have such high expectations for mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg. And honestly, like his version of the BFG, there wasn't all that much love for it, but a large portion of it did come from me. <laughs> and not just because my name is Sophie and the lead character is Sophie. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I expect more from him. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> well, and I, I suppose I'd go five, high anticipation, what an amazing on paper lineup. Four, I really enjoyed it, sort of warts and all. Uh, I thought it was very compelling and, and different for what I was expecting. And maybe three, maybe it will fade into the background. This is not, for example, on a par with Bridge of Spies, which I think is a late game masterpiece for him, um, in a similar mode, sort of muted genre, performance-led piece uh, in the Cold War. But um, yeah, I'd say in retrospect, probably a three. I suppose we'll have to see uh, how uh, how Ready Player One has come together. Mm. All yeah, I'm, on not, that, really. I'm not particularly excited about that, so uh, we'll see. I you know. know. Well, it seems to be Spielberg finally saying, oh, you know, all that Stranger Things stuff that's doing so well. Yeah. I can do that it's again. He's been late to the party, isn't he? He's like, oh, oh, you want more, like, Close Encounters Spielberg? OK, I'll give you more Close Encounters Spielberg. <laughs> but maybe you'll, like, complete a loop in the space-time continuum and yeah. like, our lives will be better. I don't know. <laughs> Come full circle that from the, the 70s. Yeah, the final masterstroke of Steven Spielberg is making it all right in the world. <laughs> yeah, that would be sure nice. Let's, yeah. let's see in, uh, in March. OK. But now... I guess we're going to talk about Coco. Coco. It's Dia de Muertos, a time when families come together to reconnect and remember their ancestors. But 12-year-old Miguel has other plans. He dreams of becoming a great musician and will travel to the land of the dead in pursuit of his musical destiny. Here's a clip. Ah, mira, mira, they're setting up for tonight. The music competition for Dia de Muertos. You want to be like your hero? You should sign up. Uh-uh. My family would freak. Look, if you're too scared, then, well, have fun making shoes. Come on, what did De La Cruz always say? Seize your moment? Show me what you got, muchacho. I'll be your first audience. Miguel! <gasps> Abuelita! What are you doing here? Um... Uh, uh... 
on alone. Doña, please. I was just getting a shine. I know your tricks, Mariachi. What did he say to you? He was just showing me his guitar. <gasps> Shame on you. Hey. My grandson is a sweet little angelito querido cielito. He wants no part of your music, Mariachi. You keep away from him. <laughs> so Pixar, a new film from them, it's always a... Something to look forward to. Were you looking forward to this one, Sophie? Loki, looking forward to it, yeah. I don't know why not Hikey, but I was looking forward to it. And did it deliver? <sighs> and how. And how. I mean, Pixar have a way of taking these huge and complicated concepts that affect us all in the most profound ways and putting them into a story and giving them a language that makes them so easy to discuss and this is a gift to children of course and this is like a movie that I think children would really enjoy but like for me you know an adult it took a while for it to really grab me it's quite noisy lots of stuff going on lots of events lots of jokes of probably like the first hour or so like lots of setup lots of characters because where they are in the land of the dead mm. everyone's a skeleton and there's lots of like details to enjoy like if a skeleton guy surprise his bone jaw might drop right off and so there's you know they have lots of fun with the design of it and it's all like perfectly enjoyable on a surface level but there's a certain point where suddenly the fact that it's about your dead relatives Mm -hmm. and the relationship between the dead and the living kicks in and by the end I was like this movie is just a beautiful beautiful thing yeah Pixar quite well known for those moments that will make you ball in the Mm -hmm. cinema yeah did it push you over the edge Hannah you know, I was just thinking of that line from uh, Call Me By Your Name where Michael Storbuck says, nature has cunning ways of finding our weak spots. <laughs> that is what Pixar do. They find your weak spot and you didn't even know it was there and they get you. And um, I always thought I had quite a healthy relationship with death. And then I watched this film and I was like, oh, oh God, I don't know anything. Um, it's a really lovely, unusual, beautiful film. Again, the same as Sophie, I was like low-key excited. I was like, oh, I don't really know what's coming, but I'm, you know, it's Pixar, they always do something interesting. And um, yeah, I, I had an absolute ball. I suppose what's interesting for me about Pixar is that it's so easy outside of the film to be intellectual and academic and say, oh, this is similar to how Disney are doing it across their whole portfolio now, is it's a, a, approaching certain underrepresented uh, cultures and so on, like following on Moana, which t- tackled Polynesian culture, and looking at Black Panther coming up this year, which is looking at an all-black cast, or the live-action remake of Lion King coming up and so on. And Coco now has been highest grossing film ever in Mexico. It really takes the culture seriously. This entire voice cast are Latin American and so on. Uh, but then you, when you watch these films, it's always a purely emotional response. You know, when those moments finally hit, all serious critical faculty just goes out the window. <laughs> I, I find it so hard to ever criticise a, a Pixar film. Same as Aardman for me. It's like mm-hmm. it's so earnest and they, they clearly love what they do and want you to love it too and it's hard to not love a film that wants so desperately you to love it and like it's so sincere and for a kid's film to deal with death in the way that Coco does is like on paper that sounds like a terrible idea like oh you're gonna scar these kids for life but no it's not so much about death as it is like about celebrating life and celebrating family and Mm -hmm. I think like in the western world we're very much told to kind of move on and forget and like try and move past death and like when someone dies it's all about like how you can move forward but this is like 
no, like carry those people with you, like remember them and, you know, never forget. Yeah. Well, one of the Torch songs is called Remember Me. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a motif. Like I came out of the film and I wanted to make a family tree. I wanted to remember people in my family who maybe I haven't even heard of yet. It's like a clarion call to let people live on through your memory and through passing stories of your memories down to others. It just... I'd say it's its impact like very much outlasts its runtime. A hundred percent, yeah. Pixar have this thing about memory as well. Like every film they make is kind of got memory as like a, a an overriding theme. Like um Finding Dory is obviously all about Dory trying to remember family and Inside Out is all about memory. Mm. Um but I'm not going to say it. I was going to say like what I talked about with Leon Chris, but I'm not going to say it because I've got to write the interview yet. Ah, uh, yes, you, you interviewed him <laughs> yesterday, did you say? Yeah, I spoke to Lee Unkrich about the film and um, about Pixar's kind of legacy. And um, most people at Pixar who've been there have been there right since the beginning. So they've been there, you know, going on for 30 years now. Mm. And it makes sense that they would be making a film about death because they are kind of at that point in their lives where they are starting to lose people that they love. Aren't all kids' (laughs) movies about death in some way or abandonment? Kids' movies can be really harrowing films at times. That's true, yeah. Are kids' movies the best place to explore themes like this? Well, I think not per se, but kids' movies make a real effort to entertain both in terms of plot, in terms of the visual landscape, because they know they've got to to hang on to a child's attention. So if you've got a movie that does that and also attends to big themes and you've got really an extraordinary cinematic package Mm. going down, they almost, I would say, give children the ability to discuss these themes instead of just being like, well, that was really sad when the mum died. I feel like mm-hmm. a, a kid could come out of Coco and they could talk about something huge because they've been given mm-hmm. the means to do so. And so, yeah, I think that these are like a sort of a, a very sophisticated children's movies. That mm-hmm. Providing children with a language to talk about very complicated yeah, issues yeah. and themes like family or passing on or yeah. grief and memory and all, all these things. Yeah. I've been trying to think since watching it where I place this amongst other Pixar movies or the, the wider Disney canon as well. Do you have an opinion yet, Hannah? I've been kind of going back and forth on this. Uh, I go back and forth on like what my favourite Pixar film is on like a kind of weekly basis. I think it's probably Monsters Inc. or Ratatouille, which I'm not too that a lot of people Brilliant would Brilliant too, say. yeah. Um, but this, for me, I think it's a grower. I think mm. you might watch it and think, OK, that was a good Pixar film, but it's not like top tier. But it does stay with you. It has mm. a remarkable sort of longevity and it has some really great songs. And yeah. uh, Remember Me is an absolute like tearjerker. Really, really brilliant. It's a very solid and worthy addition, I think, to the Pixar back catalogue. And the Land of the Dead, the, the, the sort of visual language that they use around that is just, it's very poignant, but also very colourful to see on the big screen. Uh, and then, yeah, the emotional beats we hit. Fantastic. A strange amount of Frida Kahlo in this film. <laughs> yeah, a lot. A lot, but it's, great. It's, I loved she, it. So when they go to the Land of the Dead, yeah. the, Frida Kahlo is... I think she had quite a it. complex relationship with illness and death. Yeah. And she is seen as kind of like a national icon. I don't know if it was maybe because they just wanted more of a kind of female influence mm-hmm. because it felt like a very male-driven story. Um, you know, it's about a little boy. It's him and talking about his father and his, like, grandpa and... yeah. You know, and if that was just like a way, there's a woman in here too. Um, But I loved it. Frida Kahlo is like kind of portrayed as this like crazy, um, like flamboyant artist. And there's this absolutely hilarious moment where she's like organizing this like a 
art display for a show they're putting on and it just it gets more and more abstract and I was like this is like kids are going to think that's this is funny because it's weird and I just think <laughs> it's funny because I'm like it's completely absurd but that's De- what you love about Pixar you know is that kind of levels of absurdness and that definitely seemed like yeah there's a level that only a certain sect of adults would get there yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas kids can just laugh at mono brows exactly I, I presume, yeah it's yeah. always funny to kids you know <laughs> so I think let's put some scores on this one I think Hannah what do you think about this I think it's solid fours across the board for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sophie? I honestly feel like I'm still processing it. Can I, like, deliver my final score in two weeks or something? <laughs> send in a Yeah, like, a I read a comment, yeah. <laughs> I'd say it's four, but it could, it's, like, in two weeks it could be a five. Like, I, I, I saw it very recently, and honestly it's still with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was looking forward to this. So that's a you know, four. Enjoyed this a four. I think it's slightly dimmed into a three since because of the the sort of conventionality of the structure. Mm. But I, I'd like to watch it again and just see whether it resounds as much a second time. Uh, so four, four, three for me. And that was Coco. Mm-hmm. And now we're back in a second with uh, this week's film club, which is Absence of Malice. Hello. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So Absence of Malice, a deep cut from the archive uh, of journalistic movies. This is Sidney Pollock, early 80s, starring Sally Field and Paul Newman. Paul Newman is a man who finds himself the subject of front-page news uh, that may or may not be true. It's a, a film about journalistic ethics and journalists maybe not doing the job to the best of their abilities. Here's a clip of them being taken to task. Anybody want to read the paper? got a story in here says strike force investigating the DA suspecting bribes it's a damn story you ever read nobody in this department ever read a story quite like that tell you what we're gonna do we're gonna sit right here and talk about it now if you get tired of talking here 
Mr. Marshal Elving Patrick there will hand you one of them subpoenas he's got stuck down in his pocket, and we'll go downstairs and talk in front of the grand jury. Now, we'll talk all day if you want it. But come sundown, there's going to be two things true that ain't true now. One is that the United States Department of Justice is going to know what in the good Christ, excuse me, Angie, is going on around here. And the others, I'm going to have somebody's ass in my briefcase. So, uh, we love taglines on Truth and Movies. We've talked about it many times before. And Absence of Malice is one of those films where the tagline takes up nearly the entire poster. Uh, and I would want to just read a clip from this. Suppose you picked up the morning's newspaper and your life was a front-page headline and everything they said was accurate, but not true. Brilliant, right? And then there's like two more sentences I know which <laughs> yeah. and a headline there's a headline yeah it, wow editor sub-editor maybe it's intense and have, had we seen this film before this was new to me this news was new to, to me, me. Yeah. this news. was front page news <laughs> to me <laughs> had any of uh, the listeners had a yeah we had a, had, a, had a comment from uh, Arthur Stewart I hope I'm saying that right I really enjoyed Absence of Manus Sally Field and Paul Newman were really excellent I like that the film wasn't flashy or trying to portray any character or occupation as cool or heroic the dialogue and interactions between characters felt very real. I think it could have done with a better title, maybe. I can't think of one, though. Can we think of a better title for Absence of Malice? Uh, what about, suppose you picked up this morning's newspaper <laughs> and your life was a front-page headline? I think guilty until proven innocent, question mark, could be quite good. Yeah, oh, yeah. With the question mark. Mm. Bring but, back punctuation in titles. But Absence of Malice is is a reference to a very specific bit of journalistic ethical kind of practice. Yes. Uh, the writer, Kurt Lutke, was an editor of a, of a newspaper, then he left and became a screenwriter, and the, there's this particular part of libel legislation, which is that you don't need to tell the truth in newspapers as long as it's not intended to be malicious. And that's where this whole yeah. <laughs> film jumps off from. Now you've said that he was a journalist before he was a screenwriter, a lot of things are making more sense to me. It really feels like a bit inside baseball, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it feels like a guy who's made a film that is very interesting to him, but everyone else is just like, okay, cool, cool, I guess. I find it quite fascinating to see, I mean, of course, Paul Newman's always magnetic on screen but Sally Field mm. uh, with a very feathery 80s bouffant gr yeah. great hair very uh, strange pairing of her with Paul Newman <laughs> like, I was like oh my god <laughs> you know they embark on this romance I don't think it's a spoil to say that That's do not, no, I don't think we can really spoil a film club can nah, we it's, yeah, yeah. it's um, 30, 30 years old so Paul Newman was in his like 70s by this point um, maybe not quite in his 70s I don't think uh, but, 60s, still, but still so a 60s, like, 30 year age difference yeah probably. and I was very much like this is bizarre um, <laughs> and uh, Sally Field who is a fantastic actress um <laughs> her characters are quite dislikable a lot of the time. Yeah. It's such a fascinating flip to the journalism movies we tend to see, the, the, mm. the, the spotlights and the all-presence men, as we said, where the journalists are the bastions of truth yeah, in the world. Yeah, ours is completely right when he says that no profession is betrayed favourably. Uh, <laughs> everyone's kind of a wrong in, in absence of malice. Um, yeah, another bizarre little performance from Bob Balaban, who's yeah. now Wes quite Anderson's, familiar from Wes Anderson uh, movies, usually wearing like a beanie yeah. uh, and being cuddly. Or he was, uh, you know, he's, he's played parents, he's the dad in Ghost World, isn't he? As well. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, he's here with a very strange, strong accent of uncertain origin as the uh, one of the FBI investigators. Rosen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Damn that Rosen. God, he's incorrigible. Is there anything he won't do? 
And he's <laughs> supposed to be looking into this missing person case, but just seems to want to stitch up innocent people as well, or yeah. leak information. And They're trying to put the squeeze on Paul Newman's character, and the way they think is best to put the squeeze on him is by doing this very elaborate prank, basically. <laughs> um, no, by basically framing him for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but not framing exactly because... You know, the police aren't involved or anything. They just publish a story about it. But there was an absence of malice. But Yeah, apparently there was an absence of malice. (laughs) It's so funny. Okay, so I have a friend who, I don't know if he still does, but he used to keep a large bell by the television so that when he was watching a movie and they would say the movie's title, he would ring the bell. (laughs) And there's a great scene in Absence of Malice where she's talking to the newspaper's lawyer and he's like, but you got to prove there's an absence of malice. Ding. (laughs) I just heard that bell. Ding, ding, ding. But the movie is a lot like that scene where the lawyer says absence of malice. Like There's a lot of people, Sally Field is often heard saying, I'm a reporter. I'm on deadline. <laughs> I've got to get back to the office. I'm on deadline. I'm a reporter. Like people will just earnestly explain the whole concept of both who they are, what their job is, what their role is, and the themes in the film. Um, it's kind of styled as like a you know like a macho thriller. Like there are some real on the waterfront vibes because it's all set in Florida. And so Paul Newman's character is often having conversations with these like hard bitten dock worker types where everyone's very serious and you're like, who is that guy? <laughs> and then he just won't be there again. But he's just there to have a conversation with Paul Newman in which some concepts may be or may not be explained. Loads of like the classic eighties method of escape, loads of boats. <laughs> like so yep. many boats. <laughs> but you, you do wonder whether it was in Paul Newman's contract that he had to <laughs> at least ride a boat for <laughs> If I was Paul Newman, I would have demanded it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing the film unless it's a boat. <laughs> yeah. it's this sort of style of movie, um, it, similar to House of Games, which we did in the Christmas special, mm-hmm. um, there are these very, like, again, quite earnest, like very serious, no real music, it's all very... I call them talkies, because that's all anyone, everyone does. They just lots talk, of talking. Like, just lots of talking. All sorts of strange twists and turns in this film. You're already kind of on the back foot because there's a case that they're discussing and names being thrown around. And mm. then this hard shift halfway through where Paul Newman takes matters into his own hands and is storming around. His his wholesaling business has been stymied because the unions are against him because they think that because of the newspaper, blah, 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 he's... I think he uh, killed a, killed a union, union leader, man. Yeah. yeah. And then he's calling up his uncle, who is a mafia boss, and shady meetings and tapping phone lines. And it turns into a bizarre action thriller with Paul Newman as the square-jawed hero, in a way. Yeah, and I guess, like, you would have thought from the sort of reading um, what the plot is, you would have thought, oh, maybe I'll feel sorry for Paul Mewman's character, but no, he's not a very nice person. Um, To be fair, Sally Field's character's not very nice either. No, No no one is nice in this film. And you've got Sally Field, who becomes one of the most likeable actresses in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, this was obviously very early on in her career, and... um, you kind of look at her and you're like, oh, that's Sally Field, that's Aunt May, you know? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, there's a scene where Paul Newman's um, friend is uh, basically providing his alibi, saying, like, oh, he couldn't have committed the murder because he was with me. I was getting an abortion. Please don't print that. So he goes, okay, 
I'm going to print that anyway. And like, because I'm a reporter, <laughs> Teresa. I'm a reporter. That's yeah. what we do. This is what reporters do. Reporters report the news. And um, that's kind of the point where you're like, oh, this isn't going to end well. And it, and surprise, surprise, it does not end well for anyone. Like, but there is that. The scene that we heard in the clip is my favourite scene in the movie. Mm. It's the one where you've watched this sort of stodgy kind of drama thriller of mixed kind of motives and and underhand intentions and so on. And then suddenly there's this scene with a character. Sophie, you had written down who that was. Oh, Oh, good God, yes. Are we going to get onto him now? Okay. He is a bright spark in a monochrome world. He's called Wilford Brimley. Yeah. And he basically is there to like bash all these heads together and be like, what have you crazy kids been doing? (laughs) He like gets everyone together that's involved Paul Newman, Sally Field, Bob Balaban, and also the the district attorney as well. Yeah, the DA. He's also been you know, doing stuff out of school, <laughs> stuff that the headmaster wouldn't like. And he gets them all together and just tries to get the truth and the story out of them. And he's dynamic. He's got zip because everyone else is sort of playing their character in a very, like... In my notes, I wrote tension vacuum. I don't know. Even though there's so yeah. much going on, like, no one really seems to have a pulse. Mm-hmm. They're just doing their jobs. And he comes in and he's, you know, he's got this draw. And uh, he says my favourite line someone mentions that there might have been a leak and he's like the last time there was a leak like this Noah built himself a boat (laughs) that's like the best line in the movie yes it is the best line it's like oh my god there's life you can there's life in this movie you want to know about this guy you're like what's this guy's story where's he come from I suppose in the spirit of Alistair's message that we opened the show with we're talking about Dave and his recommendations would we recommend this film based on that scene like it's worth slogging through to get to that no no. Because I've been quite critical of it thus far. I would like to flag one element that I found okay. <laughs> Sorry, faint phrase. But it was kind of underexplored. But because Paul Newman and Sally Field's characters are, via their jobs, kind of against each other, there's almost this, like, noir thing of, like, hmm. falling for the wrong girl or, like, falling for the wrong guy, you know? And it's like, is their love going to prove stronger than the situation mm-hmm. that their roles have thrust them into? And it's not really love. Like, this isn't a love story. There's no love in it. But there was some anguish, mm. at least on you detect on Sally's part, which she does genuinely like this guy but because mm-hmm. she takes herself so seriously and loves to, like... Not she's just, a reporter. She's a reporter, guys. One thing I, I liked as well that's very superficial is uh, if you're a digital fetishist, there's some great early computers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Shots of the printing process when they're typing into oh green God. on black oh, yeah. screens. At the beginning, very much like the, I watched this, I watched this and uh, the beginning of it is basically just like printing presses and, it's, and I thought... Spielberg's ripped this off. Like, <laughs> when I saw the post, I was so impressed and so like, oh, this is just like print porn. And then I watched this and I was like, oh, someone had this idea like 20 years ago. You know, but. Well, absence of malice. Mm. That was Film Club. If you can think of a better name as well, send it <laughs> in. Please do send us hear. in. And send in any comments if you do go and watch it. Mm-hmm. Truth of Movies at uh, tclunder.com. Got at LWLies or LWLies.com slash podcast. And that pretty much wraps everything up for this week. What are we talking about next week? So we're going to be talking about Downsizing, which is the new Alexander Payne film, Last Flag Flying, new Richard Linklater, Early Man, new Aardman, mm-hmm. and uh, revisiting for Film Club, Alexander Payne's election. You're one of the most popular students at Carver. You're honest, you're straightforward, and you don't crack under pressure, as we all saw in the amazing fourth quarter against Westside. All the kids look up to you. Now, what does that spell? Student, council, president. Oh, me?
Oh, no, I... I don't know anything about that stuff, Mr. M. And, I mean, besides, that's Tracy Flick's thing. She's always working so hard at yeah, it. Yeah, I know. She's a real go-getter, all right. And she's super nice. Yeah, yeah. But one person assured of victory kind of, uh, undermines the whole idea of democracy, don't you think? But, Mr. M... I mean, that'd be more like a... A dictatorship, like we studied. Oh, that's a classic. Great film, great film. I believe it's on Netflix, so get watching and send us in your thoughts. Brilliant. I'm doing, I'm doing Michael's job for him now. Well, no, <laughs> you're, you're doing the Davy or the Adams job, which is uh, setting um, up next week. I will say as well, if you're um, a fan of our print edition, mm -hmm. uh, Little White Lies 73, The Shape of Water issue is now on newsstands, so go and get yourself a copy. It's an absolute corker. Any standout pieces in there you want to plug? Well, Sophie has got a wonderful piece on uh, Beauty and the Beast, which ah. uh, is uh, definitely worth reading. In which so. I align myself with the beast. <laughs> is this the tradition of Beauties and Beasts or a particular take on it? Well, there have been many, many iterations of Beauty and the Beast, as you will discover if you read my article. But, uh -huh. you know, it dates back to the 1800s in France. So <laughs> I take a few examples, both from the written form and movie-wise. Like, there have been Disney films and mm -hmm. also Jean Cocteau made an amazing gothic erotic version. So I just take a few examples from the many, many examples and then explore the core elements and then I'll talk about why the beast is always a man when hmm. female beasts such as myself roam the earth. <laughs> <laughs> you need to find your beauty. Michael, maybe it's you. Oh, gosh. What I feel like an awkward third wheel. <laughs> <laughs> you can be, like, the teapot. I'll be, yeah, I'll be the mayor. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> I feel like the whole day is going to go smoothly now. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me today, Hannah and Sophie. And thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you again next week. This has been a 7 Digital production. Shh.